Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall, along with my co-host, Bruce Weiner in the other screen, and special guest, my husband, Lucas Marshall. Um, Today, we're going to be really talking about what we're personally doing in our own family banking system with a transfer and a change of a policy right now, and just kind of walk you through why we're doing that, what options that we're um, making available for ourselves, and some of the surrounding information about why we're taking this next step in our infinite banking policies and our family banking system. So if you're in a position of saying, hey, I really want to accumulate reserves, I want to store my net investable income in a place that I have safety and I have liquidity and I have the ability to invest in opportunities and I'm building this family banking system that's going to accumulate capital and be this store of wealth for my family, this is a part of the process. There's really really never a finished point or a end point on that path. This is all part of a journey. So we're just sharing our journey with you today. Take you behind the scenes and really just talk about why we're doing this 1035 exchange and really what that opens up for us. So thank you so much, Lucas and Bruce, both for joining me on this conversation today. Good morning. morning. So let's go ahead and um, start first. And honey, I normally call my husband babe. So you're probably going to hear that on the show today. So why don't you go ahead and share why did we start with infinite banking in the first place way before? way back in the olden days. Yeah, well, we were looking for a, a safe place to store cash uh, in between opportunities. Uh, we realized the need for liquidity when we had invested, or we had not invested, we, we had put signif- significant, almost all of our savings, and it was a lot. At that time, we were both working W-2 jobs, and we were saving mm-hmm. basically half our income. But we were putting it all in precious metals. So we're not anti-precious metals. We still have precious metals. But um, we just realized that, hey, if the, it's nice when the price is going up. It's nice if you sell when the price is high. But if the price drops and then you, all your store, your savings or liquidity or cash is there, mm-hmm. um, it, it's, it hurts to sell when the price is down. So, um, Which we ended up having to do. Yeah. So, so that, that became, we were looking for, we became aware of infinite banking and started saying, hey, we need to change up and create more of a cash flow system versus just isolating our money in different places. So that was about nine years ago. We just crossed our nine-year anniversary of our first whole life policy. And this was when we really sunk in our teeth to the idea that whole life insurance can be a place to store cash. It can be specially designed as infinite banking to have the capital reserves, grow cash value, pay dividends because it's a mutual policy and also have a death benefit that transfers your legacy. And we've had an evolution over the course of our life of recognizing, well, we also need to have human life value, which means having as much death benefit as we can have, not just the store of cash, but also valuing the death benefit. But when we really look at this idea of infinite banking itself and this initial policy, we were, we were, coming into a situation where we realized several things. One, we wanted to be able to put in more premium, and that's probably going to be something that anyone who's listening is going to have life circumstances change. At some point, you're going to want to put in more premium dollars. 
So that was one thing. What else is really factoring or influencing our decision to 1035 this policy? Uh, well, I mean, that's what you're saying. I mean, net investable income is the concept of saving as a percentage of your income. And so as your income rises, you're setting aside um, an increased amount of money and versus having a set amount of savings or saying, I only save this much and everything else gets invested. And it, it's really kind of uh, zooming out for a second and creating a system of saving and then investing and or how you manage your money, which is more of what the uh, ultra wealthy do. They uh, are okay being in cash on the sidelines, but they also have a clear criteria for how they invest. So we'll get back into that, I think, mm-hmm. towards the end. But I think um, when we got started, um, the you know we we were not we didn't design the policy. We weren't in the business at that time. We were starting health insurance. Um, agency, but we were not selling life insurance, but we were light, we were licensed to, we mm-hmm. were not selling it. And um, so there just wasn't as much thought put into the premium for our current situation at that time. We, we had some assets we could liquidate to cover the premium, but our income, because at that time we just had our first child and Rachel uh, W2 income was going away. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was kind so of, we had higher expenses, less income, yeah. So we were starting the policy and the advisor didn't really factor in what was really comfortable. Uh, we did not have clear guide rails for ourselves yet at that time um, established. So we we kind of had a the, the premium level was a bit more uncomfortable given all the things that were going on in our life at that and changes in our life at that time. And so because of that, um, we did not always pay our full premium. Sometimes mm-hmm. we paid the full premium. A lot of times it was We'll pay the base and then we'd get PUAs in there throughout the year if we could. Um, sometimes we did pay the full premium. So um, we and we I'm also had just, a lot of loans over that per- period yeah. of time too. Uh, we would take money out for our business and things like that. Uh, we have paid all those back um, and currently have no loans on our policy as, as we're getting ready to 1035 it. But What I'll say, I'm really thankful we got started when we did, being that it was nine years ago. That was um, already, at least we have some traction. So there's some history now, instead of saying, well, now we're finally starting our first policy. So at the time, I think you were 34 when you started the policy and just nine years ago, I mean, that's almost a decade past in our history that we've had this, this savings tool. And again, we weren't always saving the full premium every year, but just the fact that we got started was really, really valuable. Um, The other thing that I'll say as well, we and I'm really thankful that we did get started. I'm also really thankful that we had the capital to be able to use loans to invest in business. That was the purpose that we started the policy in the first place because the storing money in gold and silver wasn't really the ideal liquid tool. It wasn't the ideal source of liquidity when we needed to invest in the business. And so so at the time we put in $10,000 of annual premium per year. And we were really, that was just on Lucas. That was December, 2012. And again, we did use the policy for a lot of loans until this point, but everything has been repaid fully. And it was interesting. We were able to even use that to invest in some raw land on the real estate investing side, as well as putting money into the business. So it's been a really good storage tank for this capital. Now, um, Bruce, after we met you, we really well, around the time that we met you, we started really learning a lot more about infinite banking, how to properly design policies, how to think long-term, how to think really holistically in terms of having the right amount of death benefit. And 
So we didn't know you at the time that we started this policy, but we've continued to grow in our knowledge and our um, understanding of what we really wanted to create and uh, wanted to bring you in also for this conversation because of your knowledge of what this whole idea of 1035 exchanging a policy is, because you could say, well, we could have just started an additional policy and left the first one intact. That would be an option. And for anyone who is growing a family banking system, that is an option to you. We had a few reasons that we decided we wanted to not only start a new policy, but we also wanted to convert or trans transport <laughs> the cash value from one policy into starting a new one. So let's talk a little bit about what that process was. Yeah, I would say that um, very rarely should a person 1035 a policy, uh, a whole life policy to another whole life policy, unless they have specific reasons for doing it. Um, because even though you might say, well, this company, in the future, it's it's simply a projection. Mm-hmm. The reason that people 1035 whole life insurance into other whole life insurance is because that particular company offers better service. They may offer more death benefit than you're currently getting. They may offer a, um, a design that you don't have. Um, I just we just did this as a company, the Money Advantages. This company with an, another company on the East Coast because the design wasn't what the person uh, thought he was getting several years ago, <clears throat> and he was actually even uh, uh, willing to give up some of the cash value uh, to get the in, improved design, and that's what I think you and Lucas were going through. You know making all these different kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm. And so now if you're looking for another cash value type policy, whether it's universal life, index universal life, variable universal life, because they don't have the same guarantees as whole life, it brings in a plethora of other different decisions that you have to make um, going down the road. But let's just stick with the whole life to whole life right now. Uh, you, I think you and Lucas really said to yourself, hey, we would like to look at a different design that we currently have. You also were looking at maybe, uh, does it make sense to have the waiver premium? I don't, I'm not sure if you had the waiver premium in the last one. You, you were looking at the uh, possibility of the servicing of the policy, maybe a little bit of the claims, uh, future claims, uh, paying ability of that insurance company. Now, I I always hesitate to say that because I never believe any insurance company isn't going to be able to pay their claims. Mm-hmm. They just they just may not remain that particular insurance company or they have to, they're always going to pay their death benefit. Now, whether they're going to increase the death benefit along the way at the at the projection that they made is, is one thing to talk about. But these are all different things that people mull around in their personal economy to decide whether it makes sense to 1035. And we run a, a variety of different analysis uh, before we recommend. And like I said, we recommend a lot of people just keep their policies rather than 1035 exchanging their policies. And one of the big reasons is, is that you start the liquidity process or the lack of liquidity process all over again on the new policy, not on the 1035 part, 
but on the new policy, you start mm-hmm. the, the, the lack of liquidity uh, process all over again. Yeah, I think the whole idea, um, uh, if you think of the financial stability of any of these companies, they're all, I, I've never had the thought that, oh, the death benefit might not be there. Um, I think if anything, the, um, like, it's kind of like, they're all super safe or super stable companies, but there's still degrees of that. And so looking at um, uh, a company, there was a company that recently demutualized and seeing that and thinking, okay, well, <clears throat> if I'm going to have, if I'm, if my goal is to maximize safety and liquidity um, over growth, um, then I want the company that I want a company that's super strong and most likely to um, not end up in a position where maybe they need to demutualize. So what, what I mean by that is I'm never was I worried in the policy that I'm 1035 and that my cash value wouldn't be there or that my death benefit wouldn't be there. So all those values would still be there just that, Hey, maybe there's the potential that the company, you know, might end up demutualizing in the future or something of that nature. I wanted to go with the company that I just had a, a shade degree, one, one, 2% mm-hmm. more, uh, uh, confidence, Just confidence in that, the future that stability, they would yeah. continue to operate in the way that I would expect them to. Also the company we were with was, um, and not that this matters. We've done, a, I believe we've done an episode on this, but, uh, non-direct versus direct recognition. The company we were with was uh, direct recognition, meaning, and we carried a lot of loans and we saw this that did have an impact on the amount of dividends paid on the portion out in loan. Whereas we were going to a company that is, um, non-direct recognition, meaning the dividends won't be uh, directly on my policy impacted. Uh, so, but again, that's not so, a main driving reason. It just happens to be. Yeah, it's another thing. Um, maybe the listeners are trying to wonder what it, what it means to demutualize. Mm-hmm. Demutualize means that you're either bought by another company or you actually change into a stock company. Uh, another company that is a stock company. I actually have one of my policies that this happened to in the 90s. Um, when uh, Franklin Life uh, became uh, AIG, and it, I, the policy is still strong. It still has its cash value. I, I'm not worried about any of that, although they stopped paying dividends. And so, you know, I had to make a decision at that time. Should I 1035 that amount into a new policy? At, but I got that policy when I was so young. The, the leverage death benefit was so high mm. that I just decided to keep that more for the death benefits and not 1035 it into a new policy because I got the death benefit when I was so young. Mm -hmm. So all these are factors when you're trying to determine whether you should do these kind of 1035 exchanges. And, and you want to talk a little bit about what happens on the 1035 exchange? Yeah. Okay. So, so really all the 1035 is you go, you go through the process just like any other process. And then you just you determine what the you apply for a new policy. That's what you mean. Correct. Mm-hmm. You you apply. You know, if you want to get a new policy, you just apply for a new policy. And then during the process uh, of discovery, you discover because you have to tell insurance companies whether you have other insurance products, mm-hmm. and they find out because there is a directory of this. So you may as well tell them, and then you go through that process to see if you want to. Uh, take that cash value. And if it's more advantageous to take that cash value with the old company and do what they call a 1035, take the cash value to the new company without any tax ramifications. 
And when that happens, then you actually purchase a single premium policy. Think of it as like a single premium paid up additions policy. And so you're going you're to get a set amount of death benefit for that. And because it's a single premium and the actuaries have calculated all those as you're going to, you don't need any more premiums for that amount of death benefit, then it is paid up. And most of that cash value, high, high 90, high 90% of that cash value is available to you, just like it was available to you before. And so you just, you go ahead and put the policy in place. You, you put it in force by paying the premium. Then they send out a letter, a 1035 letter to the previous company. And the previous company has 90 days to actually get that money and transfer it to the new company. Now, in that process, what do you think the new company, or excuse me, what do you think the old company does? They legally want to send a fiduciary letter and say, do you know what you're doing here? And they send you a letter and say, hey, you got to make sure you know what you're giving up here. And of course, if you're working with an advisory team that has already gone over these things, you would have done that. But they fiduciarily do that. They wait for your response and then they send the cash value uh, to the new company. So it doesn't happen right away. And some, some companies are really good about transferring it really quickly within 30 days. Other ones drag, drag it out as they try to retain that particular policy on the books. And you can understand that. And they have to do that legally too. I mean, to, to, cover, to cover all the legal type of things that may come up. Mm-hmm. Like, well, you didn't tell me I was going to lose this. Right. And, and, right. and even if the new company did tell you one thing, they want to make sure they told you the right thing. So there's not, nothing nefarious here. It's just uh, about covering all the bases to make sure you're making a correct decision. Yeah. Let me walk through kind of what actually the numbers were that were in the old policy, what exactly we're doing with the new policy. And then I just made a calculation too that I think will help under, help um, you understand as a listener what Bruce means by the drop in death benefit. So let me just, um, really big picture here. So we were putting in, our initial policy was 10,000 per year that was going into premiums. Now, again, we did not pay that full premium every year. And so this is not a reflection on how um, quickly that policy was going to break even because we did not have a full $90,000 of premium into that policy. Well, we, we because we didn't pay the full premium, Correct. right? It's not going to... Um, and the, dividend, like projected. And the mm-hmm. dividend rate, as we've said in countless, I'm sure, I mean, you and Rachel have said in countless episodes, is not going to look like the original illustration. Mm-hmm. The dividend rate was much higher at that time. That was 2012. Yeah. Um, and it dropped. Sometimes they increased it one or two times, but overall, it still had gone down. So mm-hmm. um, policy is not going to form. I do want to step back one second on the idea of 1035ing and I know when uh, Rachel and I were meeting with clients and discussing life insurance, I don't, we never really, we never did a 1035. The only 1035 we did was not from whole life to whole life. It was a universal to whole life. Um, but we many times told people if they had a whole life, we never did a whole life to whole life. This is the first one I've ever been involved with. I know our team rarely ever does it. Uh, we see a lot of people with whole life policies and we rarely, does it make sense? So just wanted to rarely, rarely clarify yes. that this is, um, Definitely. It's funny that the first one I'm involved with is on myself. So, so, so 
at the nine year mark, we were in the ballpark of about $61,000 of cash value. And we were in the ballpark as well of $445,000 of death benefit on that original policy. And again, we had just had our nine year anniversary. What we did is instead of saying we want to pay $10,000 per year, we said we want to actually pay $20,000 per year of premium. So we started the new policy, Lucas applied for it, went through underwriting, paid the first premium check of $20,000. And then once that $20,000 is already at the new policy or at the new insurance company, they're working through that 1035 process to bring over that $61,000 of cash value to make a single premium payment that goes into a paid up additions rider on the new policy. So just want to kind of make that clear that within the first year, then we're paying the 21,000 or 20,000 of new premium plus that 61,000 is coming over from our cash value. Now what's happening is that in the first year of the new policy, what we're looking at is the total death benefit went from, we had 445,000 in the old policy. The new death benefit is about in year one is about 827,192. What I did though, is a calculation on how much was death benefit based on the new premium and how much was based on the 1035 exchange. The amount of death benefit on the 1035 exchange is actually only about 150,313. So that's where we're getting the loss from the original policy was in force with 445,000 of death benefit. And then the new policy, if we look at just the death benefit on the 1035 exchange portion is only about 150,000. So we are losing significant death benefit on that portion in order to restart that, um, the capitalization of the new policy. Bruce, is there anything you wanna clarify about what I'm saying or why that would be the case on that? I just wanna, um, Make sure well, the, 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 re, the, the reason it is, is because Lucas was younger when he took out the previous policy. And this policy is based upon a single premium at his older age. Mm, so that's okay. why the, the death benefit dropped by $295,000. Yeah, a single but premium won't as you, buy as much. Correct. And, and, and as you and Lucas have already said, one of the reasons you did that is because you believe that this policy in the long run will mm -hmm. be better for you than the other policy. And that's why you did it. Mm -hmm. And that's why you cannot, once again, that's a projection that you and Lucas are making too into the future. Mm -hmm. um, but that, but you're comfortable making that projection because right. you have other life insurance, you know, so on and so forth for your human life value. So that's why you're comfortable. And these are the kind of uh, conversations you have with people when they're trying to make these decisions. Yeah. And so the, the other thing, like you're saying, other life insurance, we have um, term insurance. So mm -hmm. uh, my, again, my income at the time we put that in place was different than it is now, but um, this actually will slightly increase my overall amount of death benefit. And I did it up to the limit of what the company was willing to issue um, in conjunction with my term insurance. And so um Overall, my total amount of death benefit is actually going up because of the term insurance that we also have. So uh, that was a factor in there as well. Having that term, this is where, why we're huge proponents of the human life value. You can't. Most people do not have or do not have the uh, money to pay the premium to equal their human life value, or they can't get it through in underwriting. Whole life. Yeah, in, in whole life, life. in mm -hmm. whole life insurance, or 
they can't get it the underwriter to through underwriting to cover their human life value just in whole life. So they is why we are big proponents of the term insurance. Of supplementing with term. So we have about 10 minutes until we have to wrap this show here. So um, I'm going to go ahead and show the um, premium breakdown on the new policy. So let's just walk through really quickly what it was that we did with the new premium and kind of the, a little bit of the breakdown of the policy. So you'll see that we have base premium, which is 74, 71 about premium. a year. And then I'm going to skip down to here for a second. So then we have our paid up additions rider, and that is about 10855 of premium. We also did two things that I want to point out here. We have waiver of premium, and we also have a term rider on this policy. So those are both additional costs in the policy that we found valuable to pay for and we val- we chose to pay for. So first, um, Bruce, do you want to say anything about the term rider? Well, the term rider allows you to uh, continue to put more money in than the MEC limit would normally allow for that breakdown of base for PUA. So it allows you to put more PUA into it. Now, you could you can lower that cost by doing a, a seven-year or 10-year or 15-year or a 20-year because it's Obviously, the the longer you have the coverage, the more it is annually. Now, Lucas is young, you know, relatively speaking, so he gets a lot of death benefit. So it's not quite as bad. But if somebody is saying, "Well, I don't, I don't want that extra cost," you certainly can lower that to a twenty year or ten year, or even in some cases, depending on the company, a seven year term. And why seven year? Because the MEC limit is recalculated every seven years. The downside of doing that, and I try to get this through our clients minds all the time because they don't look to capitalize long-term. They say, well, I'm only going to do this for seven years anyway. Well, they don't have the 30 plus years of experience that I have sitting down with the people after seven years and they lose their their term term death benefit. And they say, well, I want to put more money in this now. And now I can't because you lose that death benefit. So now it will mech if you put more money into it. So I always try to encourage people and show them the value of having the longest term rider you can possibly have on there because that will give you the most flexibility in the future as far as the MEC limit goes. Yeah, I think the the two driving factors in the design here is I wanted to be able to pay the premiums for as long as possible into the future, as much premium as for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. And then um, I wanted to ensure as much. uh, So one of the points I wanted to make was, uh, Bruce, this is something that you say a lot. You can only get two out of three things in a financial vehicle. You have safety, liquidity, and growth, but you can't get all three. Uh, you can't maximize mm-hmm. all three. So I, we want is I want as much safety and as much liquidity. Um, I'm willing to sacrifice growth for those two. Now we still get growth, but that's not the uh, mm-hmm. primary objective of this vehicle. And so the waiver. That's why the waiver of premium. Um, and that's why the term writer, the waiver of premium will cover the base policy and the term writer. Um, if I become totally disabled and I can't pay my, uh, I'm not able to work, the life insurance company will continue to pay that premium, keeping this policy intact. Now, I won't pay the PUAs, but I won't lose any of the benefits um, that I put into it up to that, that point if that event happens. 
Mm-hmm. And so um, the other thing being you could deduce from these numbers, it's basically about a 40% base. Uh, the reason it's not quite 40% is because of some money going into that waiver of premium and then about a 60% PUA. Uh, that's not, it, you know, there's a lot of on the internet debates and almost like a holy war over uh, policy design. But this, I, I will say for the money advantage, this isn't, we don't have one design and this isn't the uh, primary design even used with a lot of our clients. Um, it's That's, what I chose yeah, well based said. on uh, what I wanted. Uh, I wanted um, a blend of early cash value and long-term growth. And I'm looking at the economic environment we're in. And I feel like this is going to benefit uh, myself and our family the most. So uh, this is not a statement of what is the, what we think is a one right way. Uh, we don't even do this specific mm-hmm. uh, split with a lot of our clients. So that's really well said. And thank you for pointing that out. So just to know, these are things that are important to us. And then I wanted to as well show you that here is where on the policy, the single premium PUA rider is what it's called. This is our single premium of the cash value of the old policy coming over into the new policy. So that's just a breakdown where it shows the 20,000 per year is rounded to 19,999 and 98 cents. Um, and then that's annual premium going forward into this particular policy. Here is the, the lump sum coming over. So what I will say a couple of things um, about this, we have about four minutes left before we want to wrap the, the episode today. But what is really interesting is that we have seen the history of more dividends are paid on base premium. That is part of where we're looking at in even just today's interest rate environment, we expect that there will be stronger dividend performance if we have more base premium as opposed to uh, less base and more paid up additions. Now, when we look at that, we still do have 60% paid up additions, but the 40% base is a, a pretty chunky or heavy base policy. And we're looking at the long-term growth rate. If the interest rate increases, dividends would then increase, which would then even further accelerate that growth of the policy long-term. And so we're looking at this as a family banking concept, something that's not only going to benefit our children, but also future generations, because this is just the starting point with our life insurance policies that we expect then will pay out to the the next generation. Then that leveraged up death benefit will be something that they can use to buy their life insurance and pay out to the next generation as well. So um, those are just a few key pieces of why we have this kind of policy design. You want to share about our goals? Um, Yeah. So there's five. Um, The first one was increasing our net investable income. And again, our income has increased um, since we put the first policy in place. And since then, in our journey of learning and growing, and uh, we have put in place a system for saving and investing Mm -hmm. in our family. Um, But also we're sitting on a lot of cash. We're going, hey, we need to like bump up the amount we're getting into life insurance because we're sitting on this cash over here. So um, that's the the increase in premium. We could actually do a lot more. Uh, We have a lot of fluctuations going on in our personal finances with um, a number of factors and talking to our uh, accountant, our CPA and our team, our advisors, our family, and just kind of mulling it over and saying, hey, okay, let's increase, but let's wait a little bit. Let's wait a few months and see how some other things play out before we um, 
Got increase the premium additional, additional policy. So mm-hmm. um, our next one will be on Rachel. But uh, the number two is, is basically saving and investing. Our goal is to see it as an and, right? So life insurance is an and asset, not this isolated thing. We want a cash flow system for our financial life. Um, and then that goes into the next one, which is the li- luck principle, liquidity, use control, plus knowledge. And so this, this is what the wealthy, um, they do. They have clear criteria for investing and what a deal looks like to them. And you get this from, you know, that, that was a Nelson Nash's phrase, opportunity seeks liquidity. Mm-hmm. And so you have the, the capital, the deals will show up and it's just a matter of aligning, not jumping on seeing every deal, but focusing on the ones that align with our family's values and vision. And then thinking about like Warren Buffett saying the difference between the successful and the ultra successful is that the ultra successful say no almost all the time. So we're looking, we're, we know what our a deal looks like to us and we're setting the capital aside for that. Our, uh, a fourth goal is you can only get, we already said this two out of three and we're, we're most interested in the safety and liquidity. And then the last one is the economic value certainty, mm-hmm. which kind of really is an expansion on that idea. And I'll just take a quote from that, that uh, white, um, I don't know what to call it. It wasn't, wasn't a book, but uh, Le- Les McGuire. Yes, Les McGuire wrote the yeah. economic So he said, certainty. if we can identify strategies that outperform all other alternatives across the widest range of possibilities. So that was our goal, right? That's why the waiver premium, we want our plan to work in the widest range of circumstances. Then we still do not know how things will turn out, whether it's the best case, worst case, or somewhere in between. But we do know that our selected choices are superior to all others, no matter what happens. In other words, we have maximized or done the best we could do. So that was our primary goal. We want our plan to work in the widest range of circumstances. Thank you for sharing that. I think that just puts a really nice capstone on what we're doing, why we're doing it. Now, this is not to say if you have a life insurance policy, you need a 1035 it. What I hope that you would get from listening to this is get started, even with less than perfect execution, starting something as soon as possible is the number one thing that you're going to look back on and say, I'm so thankful I did that. I mean, honestly, I wish we had started life insurance whole life. I wish we had started it 10 years before that. And even before we were married, that would have been ideal. However, we didn't make that decision. We just made the best decision with the information available at the time. So go ahead and execute today, get started. You will continue to grow and expand your family banking system. Hopefully you'll continue to add policies, add premium payments, and over time, continue to build this reservoir of net investable or of investable cash that will be a a warehouse of wealth for you. It will be a war chest. It will be something that can pass on your legacy to next generations. So I will invite you to book a call with our advisor team if you're interested in exploring these concepts for yourself and really just seeing what it would look like for you to use infinite banking in your own life or to expand on current whole life policies that you have in place. And Bruce, I'm going to take us to our close unless you have something else you want to share. I know we need to hop off the call. No, I'm good. Thank you. So in closing, remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. 
If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.